Welcome to The Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Rabbi B. This is The Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. So welcome, everybody, back to our shared podcast. I am Rabbi Dr. Baruch Levy, Rabbi B, and I am here with my good friend, Dr. Daniel Franz. Dr. Dan, what's happening? Not much, B, just uh, looking forward to today's conversation. I know we've talked about it for a while, and today we get to talk about the Enneagram and the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. So I see you have your, uh, your Enneagram up there behind you. I got my props. That's- Yes, as a as an avowed one or what I've been told is a one B, I got to I got to tell you, man, that's uh, it looks a little off kilter. I, I don't know. As a perfectionist, I, I do have to point that out to you. It is off kilter, but give me some kudos because I am out in the middle of the woods in an RV and a makeshift mm. studio. And I was just, <laughs> see, look, I was I'm an eight. I was just proud that I even like put this all together at the last minute. Now, <laughs> I, got the one, I got a one in my life telling me it's off kilter. So, yeah, we need each other. We need each other. Yeah. Well, okay. So, look, all I know is is everybody in my office tells me I'm a one. And uh, the first time they told me that, they said, well, that's the perfectionist. I said, I'm not a perfectionist, right? That was offensive. They said, no, 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 no. You seek to perfect things in life. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that that seems to fit. That's all I know. Anytime uh, there's there's some you know people that are really strong in the Enneagram, really appreciate using it, use it a lot. And uh, they throw these numbers out left and right all the time. And I, I said, look, let me, I got to go back to my office and get the book out. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes. So help me understand, help the audience understand. Let's, let's, let's dive right in. What, what are these numbers? What's, why is the Enneagram so popular lately? Yeah, like uh, along those lines, let me zoom out before we zoom in, because it's overwhelming when people hear Myers-Briggs and, you know, this is my, I'm an INFJ and start throwing this around and people, I think, get overwhelmed by both systems. So so maybe we'll share a little bit about kind of the 30,000 foot view of our systems. Um, I'm sure this is not going to be a one-time conversation because it's so in-depth and complex, but also I think it'd be interesting for me at least to hear how you integrate it and relate it to logotherapy if you do it all and i'll do the same so makes sense awesome love it so um okay so thirty thousand foot view i hate the enneagram i have a hard time with the enneagram it makes me a little nauseous honestly and uh, i say that because my primary worldview is that of a logotherapist which is um Dr. Frankel's understanding that all evils in the world come down to this world reductionism, reducing. When we reduce the world around us, the people around us to the sum of their parts, in an extreme scenario, we end up with a Holocaust because all the Jews were to Hitler were numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Literally, Dr. Frankel was reduced to prison number 119104. He was no longer a human being, Jews were less than human beings. It's the only way you can eradicate 
a human being is not if they have a name, an identity, a personhood, but if they're just a number, a widget. It's how you can have slavery. It's how you can have all kinds of abuse. And that's an extreme, but I think it's important to talk about the extreme. So I, God forbid, would never reduce anybody to a number. And yet that's how the Enneagram is usually presented. It's a numbering personality system. This is who well, you and are. I want to, let me jump in on that idea of reductionism, right? Because yeah. when, when you said, you know, what we, the worst we get with reducing a human being to just this bit of information is the Holocaust or slavery. Um, I would say the very best we get out of reductionism, which isn't very good, is our current managed care system, right? For every therapist accessing insurance plans, we have to reduce our clients to a three, four digit code to submit to that insurance company for which they will say yes or no, we will or will not allow you the access to that insurance plan. So that, that grates against my very core as a practitioner in that within 45 minutes of knowing somebody, we are asked to apply a, a reductionist number so that they can have their services paid for. And it's just, it's de, you know, we use this word, it's just dehumanizing in the worst case, dehumanizing to the point of the Holocaust in the best case, or if we can call it a best case, you know, current managed care. Well, you know, I, I want to be careful in saying this, but they're not so dissimilar in that systems, all systems mm -hmm. become reductionistic if we don't stand guard against them. All language becomes reductionistic. Here's, an, here's another one, you know, you and I just like to riff, and I think it's good just to follow the flow of where it goes. We'll get to MBTI, we'll get to Enneagram, but let's stick with this idea of reductionism in numbers because I would say I'm right now, say I have 20 clients at any given time. I'd say right now I had three or four of them that I'm talking about body image issues, weight issues. I am 180 pounds, right? It's who I am. That number on the scale can really cripple us. It can, it can put us into this box. This is my body. This is who I am. This is how I'm seen. And I can see so much reductionism in just the number of weight or IQ or pick your poison. And that becomes the person and how much damage, you know, as a, as a therapist, how much damage is done around these, some of these numbers. Yeah. When we choose to focus on one variable and say, that's who we are, like weight, that number, that's who I am. No, it's not. It's a, it's, a, it's not a, it's a, it's a measure of one component of your overall health and not even a very good one, actually, because it doesn't take into account as reductionism does. It doesn't take account into the, the whole being, the person as an entirety, uh, BMI, weight, overall fitness, how you feel, right? I think that's a better measure. What is your overall health? When I talk about health, I talk about six components, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, relational, and occupational. You take that number of what your weight is and you say, that's who I am as a person. And well, as you said, you're harming only yourself. So yeah, these reductionist tendencies that are so prominent in our field, um, human beings, we seek to understand and to understand sometimes we have to reduce. Um, but I believe we understand better when we try to see the whole person, including ourselves. Yeah. And we need to have language. We need to have systems. We need to be able to communicate. So I get it. Like I get that, you know, we may may or may not need an ACT, SAT system to mm. really get people into the right setting college, or maybe they're not, you know, right for college. Maybe they should go a different route, but, but it's just a fine line between 
utilizing a system and reducing somebody to a cog in the system. And it's hard. It's a hard balancing act. So uh, I see it, though, in um, our society. I see it in the Enneagram. I thought it was just an important point to start with. Yeah, absolutely. So anybody that is interested in working with either B or I know that we will not reduce you down to one component variable, which is sometimes difficult. I love working with people and dealing with the whole humanity of an individual or a system or a couple. Um, But sometimes that takes a little bit more time than maybe how we're trained to reduce somebody down to a label. Well, you have major depressive disorder and therefore your treatment plan is eight sessions that will go through these coping skills and you're done. Right. Well, when you get into logo therapy, that's just not the way we work. It should not be. Um, and, and to me, that's a that's a foundation to start with the Enneagram or MBTI, because when somebody says, I am an Enneagram 8, they're already going down this path of I am 180 pounds. I am my uh, IQ score of whatever IQ score is, as opposed to, and, and I understand why they do that, because that's how the systems are imparted and taught and we think of but where i have come to love the enneagram i started by saying how i hate the enneagram i hate it in its corrupted form but honestly i mean you know there's lots of things i hate in their corrupted form what i love about it in its true form is when i understand that i react like an enneagram eight you react like an enneagram one But as our teacher, Dr. Viktor Frankl says, we're not here to react, we're here to respond. And now I have a starting point in a system that can help me learn how to stop reacting and start responding, which is the point of life. Beautiful. Now that that definitely goes into logotherapy. However, if I'm a one or that's a I react as a one and you react as an eight, B, what in the world does that mean? Means we can't be friends and we have to get a new podcast. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's going to work. Uh, apparently, this uh, this little relationship here seems to be working for our listeners pretty well. So even though sure. we might be, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm looking at your picture there. We're no. pretty far apart on the circle, but uh, it seems to be working well. We're actually not that far apart on the circle. We'll talk about that. But we're also able to do this, I think, in part because we're not the same Enneagram type. And that's that's part of the conversation. How can I start to see multiplicity as a blessing, not a curse, right? How can I start to see the, you know, it's everybody has a fingerprint. There's no fingerprint that's ever been or ever will be the same. I say in spiritual work, everybody has a soul print. Everybody's unique and different. And we come into each other's lives to challenge, to support, to chafe, to all these things, right? And it's, we need this this multiplicity of experience and types and energies so that we can grow and we gravitate towards people that we need to grow with. So, you know, it's not my worldview. It's not coincidence. You and I have come to this place as different energy types because we need each other to evolve on many levels. Absolutely. And and that's what I often say about the Myers-Briggs and differences in there that Differences are not good or bad. They're just different. And we need those differences in our lives to, to balance our own life out. Because if we were all a bunch of ENTJs, we would get a whole bunch of work done and not give a darn about anybody's emotions or feelings. And that would cause a lot of problems. So in the ancient world, um, in, the, in the Jewish world, they have what was called the Sanhedrin, which was a governing body, adjudicated law. And um, there was a rule that 
if everybody was unanimous in a decision, the person would, the case would be thrown out because unanimity is dangerous mm -hmm. and unanimity gets us into trouble. And when we surround ourselves in an echo chamber or when we see divergent opinions as anything but something to be welcomed, celebrated, um, we, you know, we're, we're in dangerous territory. Look at back to the Holocaust. The echo chamber, the unanimity, right, somehow is complicit in believing that all these people that aren't like us are subhuman. And so I bring that to the Enneagram or TMBTI too, because we don't want unanimity. We need that tension. Ooh, that tension. And that's okay. Two points there. That is often one of the main points that I bring to doing different uh, uh, team dynamics and, and corporate trainings is that if you have a, a corporate team or a leadership team of 10 people, all with similar or the same MBTIs, you, you're going to fall victim to, to groupthink. Everybody's going to follow the same path that can lead an organization into destruction. And so, yes, we need that tension. As the good doctor tells us, the neurodynamics of where we are now and where we want to be and that tension of becoming uh, that tension of, of healthy conflict in an organization, in a couple, in a family, as long as we can recognize, as I said, those differences aren't good or bad, they're just different, and we can accept and respect those differences, we, we add so much more to the conversation, whether it's in a leadership team or in a family. Or in the world. Um, so total aside, but it's interesting. Did you ever see the movie World War Z? Brad Pitt? Brad Pitt, the, the, the fast-moving zombies? Yes, yes, the I did, zombie yeah. apocalypse. Yes. So, if you remember that movie, there was um, the the world was coming undone because of a of a virus, right? Mm -hmm. Not hard to imagine <laughs> these days. And um, but there was one country that um, was prepared, and it was Israel in the movie. Mm -hmm. And Israel had prepared for it, and they asked why? Why Israel? And this is the true part of the make believe story, because. They said, we learned a lesson after the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Israel was caught off guard because they were complacent and they had group think, thinking they were invincible after the Six-Day War five years earlier. And they were just caught um, because they were in this echo chamber of unanimity. Well, they created, after the Yom Kippur War, what was called the Devil's Advocate Office. And that was that in politics, in these, in these behind closed doors, if everybody was in agreement, somebody had to take upon themselves the job of poking holes in the theory so mm. that they would never be caught existentially off guard again. And that, you know, that was the interesting thing for me in the movie, but it's, I've applied that in my life. When I find myself in a group that there is unanimity, I'll become the devil's advocate. Now that gets into my eights and that's another conversation, but it's so important to have the devil's advocate concept in our relationships so that it's not just we're tolerating, right? um divergent views we're welcoming we're inviting we're seeking them out mm -hmm. that's growth that's the work you know that's so interesting to hear I, I i love that in a in a leadership in a political sense in an organizational sense you took me back to a young man as a young man in college i can picture many meetings and i i have to think of this this gentleman back then he must have been an eight much like you um because i think for every group that i remember but especially in this group uh, of young men leading a fraternal organization, there's always that one guy that wants to be the, that prides himself on being the devil's advocate. And, and sometimes that's a thorn in your side, uh, especially again, as an ENTJ, right? 
um, like, no, the plan is there. I have the plan. I've thought through the plan. This is the best plan planning has ever planned. And then the devil's advocate comes in and says, but have you thought about, darn it, you just stop it. So we need that though, right? As frustrating as it might be, we need that person in our lives. So in a, in a, on a good day, I'm an eight. On a bad day, my wife calls me an eight hole. So (laughs) (laughs) it can go both ways. It can go both ways. Right, right. But I I guess, you know, what we're saying is it's so important to have systems and it's so important to challenge the systems. I don't care what the system is. Mm -hmm. And that's a starting point. That's why I call, I have a program for the Enneagram. I call Defy Your Enneagram because that's a merger for me of the work of Dr. Viktor Frankl and the Enneagram, because I don't think he would appreciate the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs at its face value if it's used as it is used by the populist, you know, by in a popular way, which is typing. Right. But, But I do think if we could explain it to the good doctor, as you say, and make the case, defy your MBTI or honor it, understand it, utilize it, harness it to become a better version of yourself, that's a different starting point. Well, absolutely. Like you said, in the Enneagram, you respond as though an eight or you respond as though a one. In the Myers-Briggs, we do not say you are an E or you are a J. We say you have a preference. Your personality prefers extroversion. But of course, these are on a spectrum where we all have the ability to flex. I'm a strong extrovert. I love being in a group and, and chatting and having conversations and having Um, you know, it it energizes me. Right. But I can also find those times where I want to sit in a corner and flex to read a book, to be peaceful, to, to be introspective. And for every extrovert that needs to flex to introversion, introverts can flex to get up and be a public speaker, to do a podcast and do these things. It just takes energy. So it isn't a a definitive reductionist label. It's just a preference in the Myers-Briggs. It's how we prefer to be, but we can always flex to the other if the situation calls for it. Such an important starting point. And um, for me, the my, and I, want, I think what we should do is, if not on this podcast, another one, I'm really interested in going down each one of those placeholders, you know, mm-hmm. the I or the E, because there's so much to say on each one. And I don't know much about uh, MBTI. I don't even know what the TI is. What is TI? Type indicator. Oh, okay. And there's yeah. um, so, um, but I guess before we go down the rabbit hole on each of these systems, um, maybe I'll just come back and do an overview of the Enneagram so people kind of have a sense of what it is. And maybe you could do the same on MBTI and then we'll save some of the rabbit hole stuff for the next one when you aren't, uh, when you're coughing. You okay? Love it. Yeah. Okay. sounds good. Yeah. Just, just still, uh, recovering from the old COVID. I just, now I'm really self-conscious hanging out with the one. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I, I didn't know which one's supposed to be at the top B. It looks like the nine, but I assume a one, I don't know. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. So there is no top. It's a circle, brother. Um, so that's a starting point. Well, but that's that's an important starting point because you're talking like a one, which has a worldview that there's a hierarchy, that there's a top, that there's a better and a worse. That's a that's a natural one thing. So already in language, you can hear typing, and it doesn't mean that's who you are, but it means your natural worldview. So the Enneagram is what I, one of the reasons why I love it is it's, thousands of years old. It grew out of probably some synthesis of geometry, Pythagoras and other uh, mathematicians and um, people who were 
at this nexus, this crossroads of different traditions, you know, we don't think of math as spiritual. Math is absolutely spiritual. There are basic spiritual principles in mathematics or in geometry. So for instance, it's built upon a triangle. If you got rid of all the lines, you would be left with the triangle. And the triangle, I just did a little talk on this, is a fundamental energetic principle, which is why you have the Trinity, right? It didn't just come out of nowhere. It's this basic building block of creation, a Trinity, a three-legged stool, right? You can't have a two-legged stool. It doesn't work. So you need this kind of third component community. One person is one person, two people is a couple, three people is a community. And so there's this energy about um, this triangle that this thing is built on. It's built on a triad, and I'll get into that. But it comes out of a mathematical and geometric world. It comes out of a Christian mystical tradition. Um, the Desert Fathers, um, 2,000 years ago, really kind of coming up with the seven deadly sins, right? Well, this is nine, but two were added later. So these ideas that there are primal negative energies, over thousands of years being developed, refined, it really came into existence a few hundred years ago when it was starting to be applied to a psychological perspective. And so now you have mathematics, you have Christian mysticism, you probably have Sufi mysticism involved, you probably have Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism involved, then you merge it with um, psychology. And you can imagine already a very complex, dynamic, ancient system it ain't the party trick that a lot of people think. What's your type? What's your, or maybe it's a party pickup line, right? What's your type, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, and that's why that's that's the foundation for me of just even before I understand it and I get to it, I have respect for things that are complex and things that have withstood the test of time. So I'm going to pause. That that resonate? That makes sense. Yeah, actually, that's uh, that reminds me of about when I closed the book and put it down, and I said, "Man, I need to talk to you about this." Um, <laughs> I do recall reading the history that it is um, considerably, I mean, fairly ancient, right? And it comes from uh, we we have no definitive uh, birth of the enneagram, but it's been shaped and molded by by multiple different schools of thought and, and ideas over over quite a long period of time. So I love that. I also love that it straddles a secular, spiritual, religious mm. worldview. You've been talking on your podcast a lot about spirituality and religion, mm. right? If, you, if our listeners haven't listened, listen to Dr. Dan's last three, four episodes. You've really been drilling down on it. I think it's an important conversation. Um, and usually it's an either or scenario for people, right? Either I'm religious or I'm secular. And that's not nothing in life is really of worth is either or. It's, it's complex, like we're talking about. And so the Enneagram really straddles worlds. So for instance, I was trained and certified in a very secular corporate um, system called IEQ-9 or Integrative Enneagram. It's the gold standard of Enneagram assessments. It's expensive. It's anywhere from 60 to $110. You know, you can get them for free, but like in life, you get what you pay for. So this one is the gold standard. It's used in corporate training and whatever. And that's why I went with it. But then I also jump over to my teacher and mentor, Father Richard Rohr, who's obviously Catholic, mm -hmm. who is a, an amazing Enneagram master. And both have a tremendous amount to say about the same system. I love that. I don't, I don't have to choose. Is it spiritual and religious or is it secular and psychological? It's both and. Mm -hmm. So I think it speaks to a lot of people for that reason. 
Absolutely. And probably a little different than MBTI that does it's it's that is a much more psychological, in my understanding, mm-hmm. you know, secular worldview. Great. It has its place. It doesn't straddle that space. That's correct. No, I mean, the MBTI it was born out of, uh, you know, well, I don't know. Let's let's just as I say that I realize, you know, it comes from Carl Jung's um, different studies in typology and the archetypes. We know Jung was somewhat of a uh, psychological mystic in some ways. He certainly did talk a little about spirituality, by no means as, not as much as Dr. Frankel did. Um, but from his archetypes, um, we get the different types that were then taken by a mother and daughter duo of, I believe it was, oh, Catherine Briggs and Isabel Myers Briggs, I believe, her daughter, who then took this in about the early 1900s. Um, a, lot, a lot of our psychological typing comes out of need in World War II to identify um, resources, human resources, human capital, and, and place them in the most effective categories or for soldiers and in, in different um, different groups and organizations, for laborers, different groups and organizations. And so the Myers-Briggs did come out of some of that research during World War II, and then later on in the 50s and 60s, and since then, um, has certainly been studied uh, in a psychological, secular kind of sense, trying mm-hmm. to validate and, and test its reliability and, and, and all those variables with it. So, um, no. Not much spiritual component to it, other than that it did come from some of Jung's archetypes, uh, but much more focused on the psychology and probably science of typology. Well, I guess as, as you're saying that, and, and I'm, you know, that much I do know about the origins of it, maybe it is more spiritual than I give it credit for, and that it was the context in which it was applied, you know, the, the corporate business secular world i think really ran with mbti as its own and that shaped i think a lot of our understanding my understanding about mbti but as you're talking about it you know well i'm an infj i don't know much but i know that mm-hmm. and i also know that uh, martin luther king was an infj and a, you know it's it's not so dissimilar than the enneagram 8 there's a lot of kind of cause justice component you'll tell you'll teach me about who i am but Mm-hmm. That's an energy. And, you know, the, each one of those Myers-Briggs types is an energy. It's a, and you know, energy when you're around somebody, whether you can name it and label it and put it into a system. Like I know when I'm around a, a joyous, lighthearted seven, see the world, adventuresome spirit. I just can feel it. And I don't need to type them to know that that's a that's an energy and that energy is a thing and that call it spiritual call it whatever you want right we're picking up on these patterns and these energies and mbti really does work dabble in that work in that space mm-hmm. well especially your mbti does dabble in that um, because that second letter n and i'm also uh, I, I have a preference towards n intuition compared to sensing, and that is often understood as how we take in information. So as I hear you saying that, right, like I have this sense about people, I have this feeling, this gut instinct, this intuition. Yes, that's how you, that again, according to the MBTI, that is how you best appreciate taking in information through that intuitive style versus S, which is more sensing, which is, you know, sight, sound, hear, you know, the, your, your five senses. 
Um, so I, I agree with you in a, in a holistic universal sense, but I also agree in Rabbi B's sense that it makes sense that that's the way you're taking in information. Yeah. Like, like you notice the thing is off kilter, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> but, but I think it's an important point in both systems, any system, but I, you know, we were talking about these, it's, it's about how we interact with the world. Right. And so I, I realized this when my dad passed away many years ago and my brother, my sister and I were talking about my dad and it dawned on me. We didn't have the same dad. Like, of course, I always thought we had the same dad. We had the same, you know, like we ran DNA tests. We had the same dad. But the way they were talking about him, I was like, that's dad. That's your dad. That's not my dad. I'm 10 years older than my brother. So literally it was like a different chapter in my dad's life. Yeah. And I think we we forget that about you see, you know, outside your window and I see outside your window and we're not necessarily seeing the same scene outside the window. And the Enneagram, at least for me, sensitizes me to that my worldview is not everybody's worldview. And I have to do the work of sensitizing myself, empathize and put myself into their position to understand that that's not how they're experiencing what I might think they're experiencing. Right. Absolutely. I, I love that idea that, you know, a, a perception, right. And that's what I use the, the Myers-Briggs for a lot in uh, especially couples work. Um, but as well as in, you know, corporate and leadership training, right. We all perceive the world differently and whether we label that, um, or, or, or try to understand it in reference of the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or any other one of the multiple assessments out there, we all perceive differently, which goes back to what I say over and over again with the Myers-Briggs and couples and teams. Different is not good or bad. It's just different. We perceive differently when we can respect that. In couples work, I say when, when a couple can give each other the grace to be different, well, then we we inform that perception. We we. Yes can approach each other with curiosity instead of judgment. And to go to the next level in these systems, I think is now, now I know that's a roadmap. I got to actually move on the map. And so for instance, here's a practical example. So I mentioned there are three um, triads. Well, by definition, there are three in a triad. There's a body, which you you and I are in body, gut, you know, kind of connected to the world in that sense. There's the head, which is what it sounds like. And there's a the heart, which is what it sounds like. So when I'm talking to somebody and I know that you're a head type, I will oftentimes say, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Knowing that's how they're processing information. I'm talking to my wife. I don't ask her if it makes sense because she doesn't make sense. I love you, sweetheart, but you're four. And I will say, does that feel right? Right. And she will hear me or, or you know, you know, does it? just move into a different place into her, into her being, because she doesn't look at the world as, does it make sense or does it not make sense? She feels her way through the world. And so already I'm trying to talk, you know, from, um, forgot his name on the love languages. Uh, Chapman. Chapman. We've talked about him. Um, right. That's, that's giving somebody a gift, not giving them what I think they want, but putting myself in their shoes to what they need in that moment. And that's where I think these systems can be truly helpful in relationships. Absolutely. Again, whether it's in a family system, a couple or, or a, a team, um, just knowing those different 
differences and then honoring them in a way that we choose. We actively choose to communicate with that person in the way they can best perceive us. And I think that is the that is the great blessing of what we do in our day-to-day work is we become very in tune with that. Um, I don't know about you. I really try to turn that on when I'm at home, but sometimes I am warned not to use the therapy stuff in my own home. Uh, but that is a blessing, right? When, when I can recognize what my wife needs um, to be heard or seen uh, or, or to truly, you know, to per- allow her to perceive in her best way. Same with my daughters. When we can reach out and allow those important people in our lives, that grace to to perceive or be perceived in the way that works for them best, it is a gift. And we can take that over into different work situations, different teams where we, you know, wherever we spend our time, when we can give those people around us that gift, we improve that relationship. Yes. And and I love what you said about the choice component, because to me, that's the crux of this matter. I was just talking with a client about power and he's resisting power because the power has this like, hierarchical dominant thing to it, but that's not power from a logo therapeutic Frankel perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he actually defined power, but I would say, and you correct me if you think I'm off, power is the ability to stop reacting to our circumstances and choose to respond to our life. Because in that, I mean, that famous quote of his, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom and our power to choose, something like that. That space, when stimulus happens, you know, that should be a bumper sticker, stimulus happens. Stimulus <laughs> happens, and I'm on autopilot, I'm asleep at the wheel, I'm in my reactive eight, right? Here I go. It's not B showing up, it's a version of me showing up. When I can find that space that Dr. Frankel talks about, take a deep breath, become conscious, and choose, which is what you just said, then I'm becoming powerful. And if these systems can help me with that space, they're good systems. And if they can't, then I throw them out. Yeah. And, and I think that is um, not, not to be overly sexist, but I think that is the nature of what many men need right now is a reminder. I think many humans, but men in general, we tend to operate from this position of, of quick and easy anger from time to time. Stimulus response is frustration and anger because that is what culture and society says the emotion is appropriate for us. But when we can take that pause, as Dr. Frankel says, and and consider the situation, the variables, um, that is the heart of, of any anger management program for which people may be referred to us. But it's also the heart of any healthy relationship. Over time, my wife and I have been married 20 years now. Over time, we've had countless interactions and through those interactions and that time together, we begin to form assumptions of how each person is going to respond in a given situation. That's just human nature. When we repeat behaviors over time, we start to develop and recognize patterns. Yes. And then when we operate out of those patterns, sometimes we get stuck. And I think sometimes that is the, the nature of working with a couple is helping them to get unstuck and to take that pause to recognize, look at how you're reacting. That may be a, re- a reaction born of of 15 years of the same negative pattern of reacting. What if we change that? What if we take a pause, take a breath and just try to see that person for their eightness, for their intuitiveness, for their perceiving, whatever it might be, whatever that system we apply. If we can just take that pause between stimulus and response to consider our reaction, 
we again we we improve that relationship a hundredfold. And and to me, that's the danger of the reductionism because when we get into these patterns and these routines. I'm demonstrating that this is who I am. This is who I think I am. I'm unconscious. I'm just doing this. This is what I do. I'm an eight. I'm an eight. I'm an eight. My wife, we've also been married for quite some time, will start to see me as an eight and she'll start to reduce me to that eight, to that box. That that's who he is. Or I, you know, I'll only speak for myself. I do that to her and she can feel boxed in and that her identity is stuck. And I start assuming, and you know, right, this is where marriages or relationships of all kinds break down. When I start reducing you to that label, to that box, and I don't allow you the freedom of what Dr. Frankel talked about, the defiant power of the human spirit, right? The defiant power of the human spirit to shatter any box. Mm -hmm. If you choose, then that's not a real relationship. That's a version of a relationship. And we got to break through those boxes and these systems, I think can be another resource in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. As long as we choose to use them in that non-reductionist way and recognize that it's, it's a pattern of being, it's, it's a, it's a preference. It's a, it's. We lost Dr. Dan. Dr. Dan, you're with us. This is NASA. Come in over. Well, folks, over. <laughs> me. my yeah, I was gonna say this is the time of the show where my computer freezes up because okay. uh, we're in Farmville. That was only a few seconds. We don't even need to edit that one out today. So uh, no, plus uh, yeah, I, I would say that maybe the universe is telling us it's time to wrap up on you know, reductionism, the Enneagram MBTI, mm-hmm. and the freedom of will to choose your response to life. Absolutely. All right. Where do we want to go with this next time? B? I, I, like I, that was a great way. That was 50,000 feet, man. We were up there in the stratosphere with the big overview. You want to dive into the weeds next time? Yeah, let's do it. Next time I, on my end, I would like to explain the kind of um, big, not big, we just did that, the nuts and bolts of the Enneagram, some of the basics, not, not go too deep into the weeds because there aren't actually nine types or 27 types and you start losing people, their eyes get glazed over. Um, but I'll present on my end, not only the nuts and bolts, but I think how they, Dr. Frankel would put his seal of approval on this, because to me, at the end of the day, it's very important that, for my own sense of integrity that I can make that connection. Agreed. And, and I, I think I we can't help but give that logotherapeutic Dr. Frankel point of view when we do these kinds of things. So I think it might be unique from our perspective uh, of studying logotherapy and, and versus maybe what other people might provide. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. I will get into the nuts and bolts of the different dichotomies of introversion, extroversion, sensing and intuiting, thinking and feeling, judging and perceiving. And we'll take a deeper dive there. I do want to point out, you make a really good point. Both of these are available in different ways. I know, I believe it's 16personalities.com, 16personalities.com offers all kinds of easy to use personality inventories and assessments and all kinds of these tests that we have access to. And those are really good for people to go to and take a look if you want to maybe get a basic understanding of where, where might you fit on the Enneagram? Where, what might your MBTI profiles be? You can find them online. However, going back to your point, um, to go in depth, 
sometimes you need to invest in a good version of it, some kind of typed, normalized, validated, reliable thing for which both you and I are certified and credentialed in different ways to do. So for those of you listening out there, yes, please, you know, whether it's a Facebook assessment or 16personalities.com, feel free to take a look and, and, and fool around and try to understand yourself a little bit better. But if you want to take a deeper view, get a hold of BRI and, and, you know, I am happy. I can do the MBTI from a distance and do a pretty, man, it's fun. A lot of thorough information there. And I'm sure you have the same with the Enneagram. Well, I want to just add on to that since, uh, you know, our listeners can pop off anytime they want, but I think it is important on my end. I think this is one of the divergent places of MBTI and Enneagram because in my limited research, MBTI is a little more quantitative and Enneagram is a little more qualitative. I mean, by definition, there are just 27 types essentially, and it's a process to get to the right one. To me, it's sort of like Sunday school. I would rather work with somebody who's Christian and has no Sunday school experience. And they're really, because I work with a lot of Christians who are grappling with their relationship with Jesus and how to find their way back. I find it's harder sometimes if they had bad Sunday school than no Sunday school. Right, Unpro- deprogramming somebody who's had a bad religious experience or a bad Enneagram experience, same thing, yeah. is harder than no Enneagram experience. And I would say, as far as the Enneagram goes, better to have no experience than a mistype or than, uh, you know, getting stuck in, a, in an area that it's just it doesn't feel like a quality <laughs> assessment. And there's too many bad assessments out there. Okay. So, so for the Enneagram, tread lightly is nothing bad's going to happen. You know, hopefully mm-hmm. your house won't collapse if you have a bad test. But if you'd like to know of the quality tests, shoot me an email, be at mysoulcenter.org, and I'd be happy to guide you there. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When it comes to the MBTI, like I said, you can find a lot of variations on there. Uh, Facebook. Now, some of my favorite things to find online are... Uh, we have posters in our offices of the different Marvel uh, comic book characters and their MBTI profiles. I know you can find uh, Harry Potter, My Little Pony, and a whole bunch of other uh, philosophers throughout history, right? So none of these are scientific. They're just a lot of fun. Um, if you want to get scientific about your type, like I said, for the MBTI, you can get an either or. The assessments I provide are on a spectrum. Um, they're a lot more data robust, a lot more information there. So, um, as you said, yeah, you can get a hold of B. You can find me at Dr. Dan, that's D R D A N at DanielAFranz.com, D A N I E L A F R A N Z.com. You can find us at our respective websites and all kinds of other stuff. So, yeah, my website is mysoulcentered.org. Um, and my new podcast is The Defiant Spirit, and Dr. Dan's is The Meaning Project. So, check out mm-hmm. them, uh, and we will. See you next time. Absolutely. Can't wait to talk and, uh, you know, get some nuts and bolts on the Enneagram and the MBTI. All right, brother. Good talking to you. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit Podcast. I would love to hear from you, to get to know you, to set up a discovery call, to see how we might work together. I work with clients across the world by phone or Zoom to discover deeper meaning and greater purpose at what I call life's tease. Tests, transitions, trials, traumas, tragedies. If you're at one of life's tees and you're looking for deeper meaning and greater purpose, then please reach out to me and I can help you discover, awaken, and live the defiant power of your spirit. Until we meet, shalom, salam, namaste, peace.